But what I did have was I had the education. I'd spent about 18 months educating myself with every waking moment I could outside of the W-2. And I felt very confident in my overall ability to speak the language with multifamily and my ability to do a basic underwriting on multifamily, right? Even without having the operational actual experience yet. Welcome to Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Tali, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Tali. Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Tali, and my guest today is Dylan Marma. Welcome, Dylan. Hey, thanks for having me, Annette. Excited to be on the show. I am very excited to have you here. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about Dylan. He is a principal of Cirrus Capital LLC. Dylan has been investing in real estate sponsored JVs over 45 million in multifamily transactions. With a background in acquisitions, investor relationships, and asset management, he presents well-rounded experience in the field. This is very impressive, 45 million in multifamily transactions. So Dylan, tell me, how did you get into real estate? So I got in similar to how most people did, very cliche story initially uh, of getting, of course, reading the books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and a lot of other basic real estate investing books. And I became intrigued by it uh, while, while I was exploring other avenues at the time of entrepreneurship. Once I, once I saw real estate and the potential it offered, I really sunk my teeth in. I moved across the country from New York out to San Diego at 20 years old and started working for a real estate company. And we did, it was mostly residential company that I worked uh, as, a, as a manager with for several years. And I ended up investing in my first property being a single family and shortly after that buying a duplex and running into a the conclusion that many make where I realized that this was going to be a long and drawn out process for me to accomplish my ultimate goals. And I felt like I hit a ceiling in my W-2. So I needed to figure out where to go from here. So I took a big leap of faith and I don't recommend my path for everyone. Really, it's not my typical advice, but I saved up a fair amount of cash to get myself started and, and had two properties. And I left to go to move from San Diego to Atlanta because at that point I was working 65, 70 hours a week in my job. I didn't have the time, I didn't have enough money to be a major asset when it came to multifamily. But what I did have was I had the education. I'd spent about 18 months educating myself with every waking moment I could outside of the W-2. And I felt very confident in my overall ability to speak the language with multifamily and my ability to do a basic underwriting on multifamily, right? Even without having the operational actual experience yet. So I left out to Atlanta, took a big bet on myself to go out there and start to build a big you know, network in multifamily to, to engage throughout the Southeast and start to uh, build broker relationships throughout the different markets. And shortly after that, I closed my first deal, which was 21 units and things start, start to compound in this space, right? For a lot of people getting started. I know what it's like to have that kind of first deal syndrome. You feel like you're never going to do a bigger deal. You feel like it's impossible. You start having <laughs> doubts and second guessing, right? But you have to just stick with it. And after that first deal hit, uh, several months later, 
I partnered up with the group and we did uh, 132 units. And then that started to trickle on to where now we've done about 750 units through and through. Um, and those have been a variety of either joint ventures or you know, we've sponsored uh, several large syndications. Awesome. That is very impressive. What do you think was the one thing that, that, that allowed you to go from a duplex to a 21 unit? Like once you moved to Atlanta, what was like the main thing that you focused on to get to that point? So I'm the type where I need to have a really, really solid core of education backing me before I have the confidence to go and place my money anywhere. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think it was just really, really understanding what conservative numbers looked like and how these deals really work. So I think having the confidence through just avid education, through mentors and, and online trainings and, and taking you know, CCIM classes and everything I could, I could get my hands on, I think that was the, the big thing that allowed me to feel comfortable with the 21 I don't think that a lack of experience is going to stop you from getting into a 21 unit. I think when people talk about a lack of experience being a barrier to entry, you're probably referring more to the larger deals, 100 plus units. But on 21 units, brokers aren't expecting you to have this giant track record of experience. A lot of people are buying these deals as personal investments. So as long as you can prove you have the money and the cash, then you should be okay when it comes to looking for a 21 unit. But then you have to make sure you feel comfortable with it to take the step. Awesome. The deal. All right. Okay, so let's talk about the deal. What type of asset and where is it located? So on the first deal that was 21 units, it was, uh, it was a deal that is located up in actually Troy, New York. So this is a funny story because I actually left school in Troy, New York, um, and I went to SUNY Albany. And Troy was um, a town that was pretty much right next door to Albany, New York, which is the capital of New York. And the deal was 100 years old. It was a deal that which is you know, one thing in itself, right? Should you do a deal 100 years old? That's the big question. This city was actually pretty, it's pretty prevalent in this city that it's all older buildings, like a lot of the Northeast is. There's not large multifamily in the city, which actually comes to be a competitive advantage from the sense of like being able to more easily manage these deals. Um, but the deal was, we, we went in at 70,000 per unit on 21 units. So it was a $1.4 million purchase roughly. And uh, from there, it was just, uh, just it was actually a group of us. It was uh, five total uh, partners. We each just invested you know, seventy thousand each to to get into the uh, the deal. At first, we did not have like a heavy capex budget or a repair budget or anything like that. We wanted to get in. We saw that it was going to be able to cash flow pretty well from day one. Um, we were in at a good cap rate. And we were able to see ten percent cash flow pretty much right out the gates, and it's been steady ever since. Uh, no major problems yet, knock on wood, uh, with a 100-year-old building, no major CapEx headaches. We've done small things with, uh, you know, fixing up the chimney, doing, uh, putting a nice dog park around the, the building, installing, you know, um, a, few, a few different, um, uh, basically, uh, what do we have, a, a few different uh, benches and, and just, did, we made like a little bit of a playground outside as well. So just making a, 
nice clean area for the residents to enjoy the space and make it more homey because it's right by the river and just overall it had a great outdoor setting and, and it was all when we took it over it was all it was all overgrown and there was bushes all over the place and it just didn't uh didn't have that same sort of vibe that we wanted it to have but um that so that that gives you a sense on the deal itself and uh since then yeah it's been uh, people always like to to say oh well that sounds like a perfect first deal i mean it's not a perfect first deal. Perfect first deal would have tripled our money in a few years, right? But but um, it was a steady first deal. And that's what I recommend for a lot of people is just starting with something that you feel comfortable with. All right. So let's unpack a little bit of it, right? So how, how did you find it? And because you were not local to that deal, correct? You mm -hmm. were in San Francisco, uh, you were in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You were in New York. Mm -hmm. So how, how did you find it? So that deal I found through a broker uh, connection, right? So I had a friend in the area, actually one of my best friends from college um, was living in the area still. And we had a, a broker connection. It was a friend of ours that had brought the deal to us. And so it was, it was a deal that was getting listed on the market there. Um, and it you know, came into our lap. We underwrote it and, and it just started to make sense to us. We, we did negotiate a bit on price. Um, we, I think, I, I think the initial price was somewhere in the one point, maybe, maybe 150,000, a hundred to 150,000 higher than we initially ended up, we ended up getting in at, um, but not, not anything over the top. Um, but, um, yeah, that was, that was where we landed. All right. And then you mentioned that the we, that you were five partners. So how did you find these partners? They were just all friends and connections of ours. So it was, uh, it was actually pretty easy for us because we all had interest in multifamily. They were all just uh, people that I met. You know, one, one was a good friend of mine from college. The other one was his brother-in-law. We actually had the broker that we were working with end up investing with us. And then another one of mine was a, a mentor of mine uh, along the way. Awesome. So, and these are people that you knew already before moving to Atlanta or that this is people that you met in Atlanta when you moved? No, I knew them all before Atlanta. That's the funny part, right? <laughs> I, I was looking all over for deals in Atlanta and then the deal came back to me in upstate New York, but I could make enough sense of it where it made sense to pull the trigger. <laughs> awesome. And was this um, something that you were looking with this group for other properties or like you find one of you found the deal and then you approached the other people to join you. It was, we were looking at a few properties together. It wasn't the first property we looked at together. So we all knew we wanted to get into something. Um, but it wasn't like we were avidly looking all throughout Atlanta and the different markets that I was also looking at at the time. It was more so we were meeting together every, every couple months with the deal. We check it out and finally we made, found one that made sense. Okay, so, so that you bring a, point, a very important point that is networking with people that are focused on the same thing that you want to do because once you find something, then you have the, the people ready to join you in, in you know, mm -hmm. doing this deal together, correct? Oh, yeah, right. It's all about building those connections and sharing the common interests and sharing what it is that you're interested in as far as if you're looking at multifamily, um, making sure you're, you're open and vocal about it with your friends because you'd be surprised who is who else will have interest and want to partner. Absolutely. All right. So you mentioned that uh, the initial price was a little bit higher than what you end up paying for it. So how did you negotiate this? What were the, um, the negotiating points? Mm -hmm. At the time, I don't think we had 
a ton of experience with negotiating the prices, right? Because that was one where we, uh, you know, still, still early on in, in the career. So I don't think we use any, any kind of sophisticated uh, strategies uh, of going about it. I just think we, we knew what our numbers were and we just went in and placed our LOI, uh, you know, below where the, the starting price was. And it actually took a few months. I think it probably took us probably four, four months or so before we got them down to the price we were at. Um, but we were just fortunate that no one came in and, and paid above where we were asking and eventually it came back to us. So it's just a matter of kind of sticking with it, staying persistent and just doing the follow-up. Right. How often do you follow up with brokers? On deals, it really depends on how much we like the deal and what the situation is on the story. I try to connect with brokers every every few every few months. I try to make sure I at least have a check-in call if there's no deal in mind, just to stay consistent and stay on their radar. But when there's a deal in mind, depends on how much we like the deal. I'd say sometimes it's it's once a month. Uh, if it's something that we think is going to move quickly, it could be uh, once a week, <laughs> depending on how much we like it. Awesome. All right. Um, so was this deal listed while you were waiting? Like they ended up putting it on the market? Correct. It was okay. listed. Yep. Yep. So that, that's, just, that's the thing, right? Everyone, you know, especially right now, thinks there's no deals out there, uh, thinks there's no deals in the, the Northeast. I personally, I, I'm not planning to grow anymore in the Northeast and as far as the market goes. But honestly, for a personal cash investment, it made sense to, to do it. Um, I, I think I'd have trouble and I don't think I'd want to bring uh, other investors money in there um, in, into that area, right? I'm in the Southeast for a reason. And that's why most of the deals I've done have been <laughs> down here in the Southeast. But I think it's just, a sto I guess if there's anything to take away from it, I'd say it's just that there are deals out there and there even are deals if in your backyard, probably if you're not in one of these hot markets that everyone's talking about on the podcast, it's very possible to find them. And just because it's listed and just because you, you talk to a broker about it doesn't always mean it's going to be a bad deal or it's going to be overpriced. Um, for us, it's worked out very well and we're very happy with it. And I think uh, I also have a lesson that I would, I would say take away for anyone that is new I always highly encourage you not to go after the heavy value add opportunistic stuff. I think people get greedy or they get antsy about getting into their first deal and they want to go in and take something that's 50% occupied and, and fix it up and put $12,000 a unit in and, and reoccupy the property and, and bet on the fact that there's a local employer moving in down the street or something crazy like that. I, I just think there's so many moving parts when you start looking at deals like that, that regardless of your background, if you haven't been doing multifamily and, and transactions for a long time, you're taking on a lot of risk and an unnecessary amount of risk. And if you have a bad experience, how is that going to sit with you, right? What is going to be your reaction? And what do you think that's going to do in terms of your long-term projections in the space, right? It's probably going to be discouraging, it's probably going to give you headaches, and you're probably going to have a lot of issues with um, you know, sticking with it after that, right? Uh, so, so just... Keep it simple on the first one. Don't do anything crazy. I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, once we decided, my husband and I, to get into real estate, it took us one year to find the property that we finally bought. Um, but it, and it was kind of like a learning experience, too. I don't think it was like a wasted time because by the mm -hmm. time that we 
sold that property, we knew exactly how much it was worth and we knew that it was worth it. We, you know, offered right away, like the same day we saw it. There, you know, it was a little bit of a bidding work at, at the time, but we ended up getting it, but because we knew the value of it, you know, uh, when you start, you don't necessarily know, you know, you may be investing in a city, but you might not know all the locations, all the streets, all the areas. And, you know, once you narrow it down to the areas that you like, as soon as you see something, then you, you know right away. Mm-hmm. Right. That That's definitely a good point. It's, I, I like to compare it to when you're looking at, say, a, you're doing a puzzle, right? And you're looking at all these pieces at first, you can't really figure it out. But if you stare at it for long enough, you start to see little details and things that you would not have spotted previous to that. And it's the same thing when you're looking at a market. If you're avidly hunting in a market and you see enough deals then things start to make sense because eventually you get to the point where you have almost a i don't want to mislead people saying you know you don't want to make your decision completely on just intuition uh, in a sense but but there is kind of an intuitive part where or or just maybe a stored memory bank that you have in your head where you know what the price per door that you can pay in certain parts of town is that you, you know when that's a quality part of town and that's a good street or a bad street. So it's tough because you want to look at a lot of markets. Sometimes you, you feel like there's, there's only so many transactions a year and you want to, you don't want to miss things, but, but you're oftentimes much better off just staying hyper-focused on one market or, or, or a few markets, especially in the beginning and really, really knowing them well so that when something comes up, you have a competitive edge of knowing the sub-market and, and that part of town. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, and I, you know, you mentioned also something very important. You, you stick to your numbers. You're right. Like you didn't try to get it for more than it was worth. You just waited mm-hmm. until they decided, okay, let's take that offer. Yeah. And I don't negotiate just for the sake of negotiating. I, I'd say I've had the, the next deal of 132 units that was initially asking 45. Within an hour of hearing the night, the price, I responded that we, we would go in at 45, right? It, it was something where it made so much sense that I knew we were going to be in a great deal and it turned out to be that way. So I think when you, when you're looking at your numbers, just know what you personally need to hit. And that might be subjective. It might, it depends on your personal situation. Is it your money? Are you bringing in investor money? What kind of target returns do you want to hit? What level of risk do you envision? I don't think that gets talked about enough, right? Uh, a 10% cash flow in one area is not the same as a 10% cash flow in another area that's much less risky, right? So every, you know, every, the stream of income depends on the level of risk that is involved in this space. So you want to also know what your return is based on the amount of risk that you foresee in the project that you're, you're investing into. Absolutely. All right. So um, tell us about how did you finance the deal? So you said that you, each of you put some money, uh, mm-hmm. but how did you do the debt part of it? So on that one, we used a Freddie Mac small balance loan. It was a perfect deal size being 1.4 million where we can get a loan just over a million bucks. And at that point, that's where you're qualified for the Freddie SBL. Sometimes you can do a little bit less, but that's typically where it lands. And it was a pretty straightforward process. I mean, going agency after being used to, you know, if you if you look at say community banks or something along those lines, it, you know, there is a lot of paperwork and and uh, steps you have to take to do that, but it's nothing to be scared of by any means. It's pretty straightforward. And another thing, another lesson, if you're new, because a lot of people get caught in these 
things that get thrown around of, oh, you need experience to get agency debt. Oh, you need experience to go and do a deal. You don't really need that much experience or really any to, to do a Freddie SBL loan, at least in my perspective and from what I've seen. When you're doing Fannie conventional loans, that starts to change things. Granted, your, uh, your loan terms will probably be improved if you have experience. The lenders really do take a holistic view on who are the borrowers and what is their experience and what is the market and do they have boots in the ground. Obviously, in our case, it really helped we had boots in the ground because my friend was right there and now he actually runs a contracting business right there, which helps us with the asset management of it day to day. Um, but yeah, as far as that goes, uh, just know that don't, don't be scared of the Freddie uh, SBL on the, on the first, um, on the first deal that you do. Right. And, and to do one of these Freddie Mac or uh, Fannie Mae loans, you have to have certain occupancy, correct? Yes. In yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it, it has to be uh, at least 90% occupied. You need to have a good DCR uh, debt coverage ratio, I would say uh, at least 1.25. And in some markets, in this market, it was posted at 135. Okay. So it, it, the, S, the DSCR is depending on the market? Correct. Totally market dependent. Um, when the lenders look at a market, they're going to demand higher DCR for markets that have more perceived risk involved, as well as assets. If it's a C-class property, it's going to need a higher DCR than an A-class property, right? So it depends on the market and the asset type. Okay. Market and asset. Awesome. All right. So what's the exit strategy? Do you still own it or did you sold it? Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about that. Yeah. So we did get a step down loan just because we know we knew we were going to increase the rents incrementally it wasn't a, a heavy lift or heavy renovation but we did see some room to be able to increase the rents uh, just to the tune of anywhere between 50 up to 100 dollars um, per unit over, over time so we figured we figured we could do a step down in the loan so you have a smaller prepayment uh, along the way to do a refinance so now after a few years we are in probably going to year four now um we are going to consider doing a refinance. I don't have the exact numbers in terms of how much we would refinance out. I don't think it's going to be anything crazy. It's definitely not going to be like refinancing out all of our money or anything like that, but, but it might make sense to pull some cash out because we, we still have a pretty high cash flow. And uh, right now rates are great. So it gives us some flexibility there. I think, on our, I think at that time we had over a 5% interest rate, which could have been number one, it was definitely a factor of where rates were at the time. And two, probably the fact that we didn't have quite as much of the, experienced so now yeah we can probably refinance into a get a better rate get more interest with the experience that we have and and just pull some initial capital out and i think it's all of our intentions to just hold this property for the long run i mean we, we really like the property we think it's in a great area it's got a really quality resident base even in covid we have not budged an inch in terms of our, our collections and, and the way that it, the property has been performing and operating because we have kind of higher income residents in the area, a lot of uh, grad students and some that work at the med center nearby. And uh, it's, it's you know one of those deals that I think we'll probably just sit on and hold for, for as long as we can see, unless there's any kind of posing threats or, or we get a ridiculously good offer that we, we just can't say no to. Absolutely. If, uh, you know, everything is for sale at the right price, right? That's true. Uh, <laughs> definitely is. 
All right. So can you explain a little bit for the people that don't know how the step down works, the step down loan works? Mm -hmm. So the step down loan is basically when you look at an agency loan, you're usually presented with several options in terms of the way that your prepayment is structured. Typical option, if you want to receive the option that has the best interest rate, you're going to be put in a position where you have yield maintenance or defeatance. And what that means is that if you're getting a 10-year loan, basically you're going to be responsible, say year five, you want to sell the property or refinance it. There, there's, there is differences between yield maintenance and defeasance, but just to keep it simple, you're, you're basically on the hook to pay the remainder of the interest that you would have paid the loan company for the next five years. And as you can imagine, that can be a lot of money, right? Because if you're talking a million dollars, a million dollar loan balance, five years at, at 5%, you're talking 250,000, right? So that's starting to get to be a pretty serious amount of money um, on, to, to pay on a refinance or, or the sale of the property. So you're really incentivized more so to hold it long-term in those situations. Now, when you look at a step-down you're going to be able to usually have two options. There's either the, the regular step down or the accelerated step down. And that might look like if you have a 10 year loan, basically 5%, 5%, 4%, 4%, three, two, one, right? So every, every two years it drops down 1%. So you have a 5% penalty year one, and that slowly starts to drop down over time. And the accelerated step down is basically the same thing, just a little bit on, on a faster schedule overall. If you do a regular step down, you're going to pay a, a fair amount of additional uh, basis points on your interest rate. And then if you do accelerated, you'll pay a little bit even more than that, right? And that's really up to you as the operator uh, as far as the route you want to go. I think in our case, we had we still weren't fully certain if we're going to hold it long term. We still weren't fully certain if we're going to be able to refinance. Rates were a little bit high at the time, and we only had one year interest only. So we figured let's let's buy some flexibility so that in a few years we don't find ourselves in a pinch. I usually encourage buying some flexibility and paying a little bit of extra interest so that you're not stuck with it. You never know. What if in two years? You're, you, you have a home run offer in front of you, but now you have to pay an extra million dollars to sell the property. You're really gonna be kicking yourself for not paying that little bit of extra interest along the way. So more often than not, I, I definitely lean towards having a step down, especially in the syndication deals. Uh, you know, if, you're, if you're planning on holding long-term and you know that for a fact, and there's no way you're selling that thing unless there's something crazy that comes up, um, then maybe you wanna go with the yield maintenance or defeasance. I can definitely, understand that route, but I typically lean towards at least a regular step down and then just have your exit strategy in mind and make sure that that's helping guide your, your um, choice on the financing side. Awesome. All right. So before we go to our three expert tips, I wanted to remind everybody to like, share, and comment, and to subscribe to the YouTube channel or to listen on our, uh, our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, uh, or Stitcher. Expert tips. So the three tips for the three tips today, Dylan is going to talk about asset management communications. He's going to give us three expert tips on that. So let me hear yeah. them. So this largely deals with when you're working with investors. It, I would say JV Partners, it applies just as well. It's actually a project that I'm 
I'm passionate about right now because I'm actually launching a, a software project with a partner next week that's going to be really focused. Our, our why or our, our mission behind it is to help create better operators, better uh, asset managers, and specifically from the, the point of being a better communicator along the way with your asset management, right? Ours is basically going to be an investor portal that puts an emphasis on the asset management and provides virtual statements so you can see the ongoing performance on it and allows for even the newer investors to be able to have an affordable tool that they can use to, to communicate with investors for, because right now a lot of them are very, very expensive. So a couple pointers that I can give to someone to be a better, uh, better asset manager or in better communications with their investors, which is kind of, it's kind of a hybrid, it's asset management and investor relations. And I would say number one is first off, send out monthly statements with footnotes. Oftentimes your property manager, if you're using third party, will send you some kind of an app folio or Yardi statement, whichever software they use. I would take that and then manually upload that into an Excel document where you track that every single month along the way and you have a very crystal clear P&L of what are your various income sources, what, is, what are the different expense line items, and then track that and compare that against the budget, right? So you typically, when you're underwriting a deal and you especially you're bringing on partners, you're gonna have some kind of an initial pro forma and projection. So month over month, you wanna see what, are, what is the variance between your actual and your, your projected. And then you should really have some pointers there to be able to explain any variances that are either from previous months or just in terms of actual versus projection and have footnotes that can explain any, any um, positive or negative variances. If you're really well on something, it's still worth celebrating and you should be able to share what you did to lower the trash bill or what you did to, to create additional income through pet fees or something along those lines. But if it's, and if it's negative, similar thing there, right? If, if the water bill goes up because the, the county imposes something new, then you wanna be able to let everyone know that. If your insurance bill goes up, as we've all seen happen, uh, you know, then, then you wanna be able to let them know why insurance is going up, right? And there's, so, so there's these, these variances along the way. And I think having a nice, clean, crisp statement um, and a place where people can go and, and be able to view these statements to know clearly what's going on is going to help. I mean, not every investor is gonna be super analytical and dive deep into the statements, but you will have some that are. And even for those that aren't, they're gonna feel comforted knowing that they have those statements. Absolutely. Two, Number two is the quarterly webinars. I would say in the beginning of a project, if you really wanna go out there and show people what you're doing, you should have a clear 90 day plan, which is all of the events and all the improvements that you're going to go out there and implement during the first 90 days of your takeover. Now, doing a monthly webinar may be encouraged for those first 90 days to be able to show them how your plan's going, right? Maybe, because that's when a lot of the exciting stuff is going on and you, and you really wanna make a dent on the community, right? You're probably, you might be increasing rents at some point down the road. Uh, the first thing I believe in is making a value for value transaction. Before I start going out and increasing rents and, and um, asking more from the residents, I wanna give them more first, right? You wanna give and then ask, right? Uh, so, so you wanna go and implement new signage, you know, uh, power wash the sides of the buildings, you wanna, want to do any any exterior stuff that's going to pop and, and make a, make an impact to show that you're reinvesting back in the property uh, right away and and doing webinars once once a month for those first three months can make a real impression on everyone to show that that 
wow, these guys are serious. These operators, they know what they're doing. They're not messing around. They're making improvements every single month. And that's kind of sets the tone for the rest of the project. And then from there, doing quarterly webinars will be helpful. If you're doing really, really good monthly statements, you'll find you don't really need as many of the quarterly webinars, but you still always want a place for people to come on, connect, ask questions about the property, go over, maybe for the people that don't like to go and try to read these statements themselves, you can kind of explain it in layman's terms as far as what's going on in the macro perspective of the area, the, macro, the perspective of the sub-market, and then, and then the property itself in terms of how the overall performance is, if you have any thoughts about selling the property or, or any, any new findings along the way from the last quarter. I think that those make a really nice place for people to get in and connect. And then number three, lastly, this is more so I'd say on the investor relations side is just annual check-ins. Um, I would have some kind of a check-in system to where you just touch base with your investors. You might do this might way more frequently, really up to you. Um, but I would at, at minimum just once a year have, have a time where you, where you just check in with everybody just to see how it's going, see what their thoughts are on the property, see, you know, if they're, what their investment goals are, if they've changed at all or what they're in this case, you know, what, what they're, what they're doing in terms of COVID, if they're, you know, uh, maybe some people are, are going to have questions for you about what do you think is going to happen with real estate and, and the markets, right? So this is more, more important of a time than ever to, uh, to have those, those check-ins. So I think annual check-in calls. And then lastly, if I could add even a fourth one, I would say doing some kind of a, a net promoter score. Uh, net promoter scores are pretty common in any industry, really. It's just more of a uh, score between one and 10 to give you a sense on, on what someone's overall feel is. Usually the question is how likely would you be to refer someone else to invest with us, right? And that's going to be a nice tell for you. Um, I, think, I think a seven is neutral. Uh, really eight to 10 is, is your brand advocates that are going to go out there and find other investors to come back and refer to you. And anything below that is kind of the danger zone where you want to figure out what's going wrong. How can we improve? And, and make our overall experience better for the investors. And this can be tough because obviously not every deal is gonna be perfect. And if you're having a tough time, that may, that may weigh into their net promoter scores. So it's not always based solely around how your communication efforts are. It can be based around how the deal performance is as well, but at least gives you kind of a holistic impression and it lets you know, right? Because if you're, if you're really good um, at, at being able to have these the communication down and your operational stuff down and they see that every month you have notes and you have specific action plans that you're taking to improve the things that are down. I think at the end of the day, people realize that they took a risk in the first place. Investing in real estate always entails some level of risk. So if it doesn't work out and they're fair enough to be able to see what you're doing and see your proactiveness, more often than not, I think people will still respond in kind and, and uh, feel good about uh, continuing to, to work with you moving forward. Awesome. Thank you so much for all that knowledge that you just shared with us. Uh, I think it's very important to keep uh, your investors engaged because also they might invest with you again, you know, not only mm -hmm. for referrals, but for investing with you again. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for the people that don't know you yet. Uh, where can they find you? You can reach out to me. Uh, you can email me dylanmarma at gmail.com or you can reach out to me on, on most social media platforms. Awesome. Thank you for, so much for being here and for sharing all this with my audience. All right, thanks so much. 
This was Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.